My name is Malavika Prasid, and I'm the host of the Your Favorite Book Podcast, a podcast all about asking that big question, what's your favorite book and why? I have no real qualifications, I just really love books, and yada yada yada. We're not here to talk about a book, we are here because it is the end of the month, and we are going to discuss a short story. My guest is a familiar voice, Dee Dee Brown. Dee Dee was our guest back on the Song of Achilles episode, probably one of the few books that's been discussed on the show that I could also consider an all-time favorite, one of many. And Dee Dee is here to talk about a sci-fi, speculative, what-have-you classic in the genre. And so, let's dive in. Welcome to your favorite book. Hey, Dee Dee, welcome back to the show. I, I know it's been a bit. How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. It feels like a fast and slow start to the year. Um, feels like it's been 2022 forever already, but also just started. Right, yeah, like we're already pretty much close to halfway done with February. Well, by the time this comes out, we'll be all the way done with February pretty much. Oh, and goodness. it's it's going right along. I mean, January felt about a thousand years long, so. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think it's just the weather too. I mean, cold and wet mm-hmm. and not even the right kind of snow most of the time, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you for joining me. I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, we're talking away, uh, we're talking about the ones who walk away from Omelas? Omelas? I should say it all, all different ways. I say Omelas, so omelas. we'll go with that, but I've heard it many ways. I I was freaking out because I, I told a friend, like, I don't know how to say this. I probably said it wrong when I was introducing this show and like other episodes. And and they're like, in the end, it's like a fantasy word. Like, it's yeah. not real. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's probably a proper pronunciation. I'm going to call it Omelas because that's what comes to comes to tongue for me. Um, but obviously, this is one of Ursula K. Le Guin's most famous short stories. Mm-hmm. And as I was telling you before we started recording, somehow I hadn't read it before, which is a little nuts. Love that. It's, like, it's a total classic. And I'm glad you picked this one to talk about. Uh, but before we dive into the story, you know, I, I'd love to check in with you. And this is a question I've been asking uh, some of my guests lately. Can you tell me something? It can be book related, non book related. But what's currently your obsession right now? What's currently? Oh, my goodness. That is such a good question. Um, I'm going to go with something not bookish related because I feel like I need to expand my brand, although not that far, because what I'm going to say is um, herbal tea. (laughs) So I feel like that fits with the bookish brand. But, um, you know, so uh, I have always thought of myself as a person who doesn't like tea, um, Mm. which I think came from the fact that my mother used to order um, iced tea from fast food restaurants. And I would think that it was Coke and take a big sip and it was terrible. And so <laughs> I, I have discovered that I don't think that black tea is for me. I think that's probably the tea taste that I, that I don't like, but I've been playing around a lot with like nighttime teas and herbal teas lately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, just because I was looking for like an after work type of like ritual to signal that, Um, you know, the day was over and then it was time to transition. Um, And then from there, it sort of just like spiraled to trying different flavors. Mm -hmm. I did a sampler of the different, um, you know, stress relief and relaxation teas from David's Tea, Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of like a like a famous premium brand. And so that that allowed me to like experiment a bit. Um, But yeah, so I, I recently 
have been playing around with tea. And my mother got me for my birthday. This is the most ridiculous extra birthday gift of all time, which is why it's the perfect birthday gift because I couldn't buy it for myself. But um, so she got me a smart mug. Mm-hmm. The brand is Ember. And it is like it keeps your tea or coffee hot. But it also has a Bluetooth app. So like it knows how hot the beverage is and it tells you when it's like cool enough to drink and then it keeps it there. And you like get a notification that your drink is like ready to drink and it's like the future. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like so silly and ridiculous. But I'm like also the whole world should work this way. It's 2022. You know, I don't want to I don't know what to make of that because like on one end I'm thinking that sounds useful. And on the other end, I'm like. It's Black Mirror. The devices are going to attack us. <laughs> I just like feel bad for all the other mugs I own because I'm obviously never using them again. <laughs> I, I That's so interesting to me. And I, I, I'm glad you brought tea into this. Um, so I'm kind of notorious uh, in at least a few of my friends, especially for being a, a bad Indian because I don't like tea. Like That's what I've always said. I, I just like, and it's like, I grew up with like amazing, like homemade chai in our house mm-hmm. multiple times a day. And I was the one person who didn't want to drink it. And I'm like, no, I don't like it. But to be fair, I haven't tried herbal tea. So maybe that's There's what I There's a need. lot of different kinds. Yeah. So like, yeah. I just got like a nice, like lemony chamomile. You can like take the bag out early and then it's like weak and you sort of get used to the taste. But I agree. I was always like, there's like just the tea taste. That's what I don't like. And I've sort of discovered that that's not in all of them, um, which people who love tea are probably laughing at me as they listen to this. But (laughs) I like tea as long as it's not like tea. You know, that was my with with coffee when I first started drinking coffee. Now I can drink coffee with just like a little milk and a little sugar. But in the past, Mm -hmm. it's like, dump all the milk and sugar into mm-hmm. it until it's not even coffee anymore. Mm-hmm. But I started um, my coffee journey with iced mochas with extra chocolate. So it was basically chocolate milk with caffeine yes. in it. <laughs> it's the best. It's still really good. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. But um, yeah, and I really liked what you said about like an after work ritual because mm-hmm. I don't work from home every day of the week, but I do work from home today, which is Wednesday. And it's like, I went from my, I'm like, okay, how do I signal work ending to not work ending? And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, change the work computer for the home computer. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's so relatable. I sit in my same chair. I'm like, this is yep. late. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think that it was like, also, because I work at a startup and the, the pace is really fast, I'm like getting Slack notifications like literally all day, every day. By the end of my workday, I'm just so wired and mm. I'm just like so like hopped up on like notification dopamine and it's really hard for me to like slow down. So I was like, let me like get this like nighttime tea that's yeah. like supposed to relax you. And I, you know, I think that helps a little, but I think also just like the ritual of a warm beverage um, you know, cause we can't do wine every night. I mean, I guess we can, some people do, but like, I wanted to not make that choice for me Fair. and, uh, and I have really been enjoying it. Yeah. That's a really great thing to be obsessed with. You know, it's I, every person I've asked this question to has named something food or drink related. So I wonder mm. if this is going to be a trend. Like I had a guest who brought up aloe vera juice. I have a friend who brought up oat yogurt, like things people have gotten into. And I'm like, Everyone is too fancy for me. (laughs) (laughs) With my like smart Bluetooth mug. (laughs) And I'm like, I had some peanut butter today. That was great. Oh, I love peanut butter. Oh, peanut butter is life. It is. All right. So now that we've warmed up a little bit, (laughs) no pun intended with the warm heat, um, let's talk a little bit about this story. I mean, it's not so much of a laughing matter. No, that's true. This story, I mean, first I want to ask you like, how, how much had you read by Ursula Le Guin before? I'm interested in knowing, like, have you had a journey with this writer at all? No, but she is someone that I 
want to go on a journey with. Um, so I have, I read A Wizard of Earthsea um, a couple years ago. I actually encountered this short story during a writing workshop. It was assigned as um, a setting example, like an example of writing setting really well. Um, and I had heard of it before I read it, but I didn't realize that that was that that was the story until I finished it. And I was like, oh, this is that famous short story. Mm. Um, and, uh, but I did also just last month read um, The Left Hand of Darkness, which um, was like obviously so different from Earthsea um, because Earthsea is written for a much younger audience. Um, but I would, I really do want to like make my way through all of her work. I think it's just like really interesting how she wrote for so many decades that yeah. she was able to like revisit universes and like address like the gender politics that she had originally set forth. And like, there are just not a lot of examples of that. I don't think in, you know, in any like writer's canon. And so um, I do sort of have like an on the side, um, you know, fascination with, with Ursula Le Guin, but there are definitely worse worst things to have a fascination with, I think. For sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the, those particular works that you read because they're the ones I, I I have only read very little by her. As I mentioned, somehow I hadn't read this story before all this. The only book I've read by Ursula Le Guin was a book we actually did for the podcast a couple months ago, which I've mentioned a few times on the show, and it is Always Coming Home, which is one of her later works. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. kind of a amalgamation of a lot of her styles. There's some poetry, there's some um, prose in there, some fables. It's a, kind of a fictional ethnography for this people she's created. Love and it that. brings to all her anthropology into play. And it's one of the only books for this podcast I couldn't finish. <laughs> oh no. Which was not the book's fault. It was just very much A, me not knowing what I was getting into, B, not planning. Yeah, that's always big. Not planning ahead. And yeah. the book was like 700 pages long. And, mm. and poetry always takes longer than the number of pages it suggests. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then just me just struggling with the subject matter, you know, not really expecting anthropology, but my guest was really mm -hmm. great. And I got more out of it after talking with her. And I know, and she also did mention, she's like, oh yeah, if you've never read Le Guin before, that's probably not where I would start. So no, I think there's an order to where you start with her. And I think you're probably yeah. closer to it than me. Yeah. But this story, I think definitely is a lot more approachable than some of that work. Mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, one of those canonical story that's, it's taught very often. I mean, you could definitely mm -hmm. compare it to maybe Shirley Jackson's The Lottery for more reasons than one. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I was going to say, I think it's like less creepy and, and disturbing, but maybe not. I, but I, I mean, I also read The Lottery when I was in high school and I just remember being like, just so so traumatized. <laughs> I think because of the lottery, this one might seem less creepy because the lottery kind of creeps up on you with the tone a little bit. This one almost mm -hmm. seemed, at first you think, oh, wow, it's out of left field. But you realize kind of in the narration of this, you know, we, we start out the story with a long description of the, the festival that's coming here in Omalas. Mm -hmm. But we notice that the narrator is really trying to convince us about this town mm -hmm. and its people. And we're like, the lady doth protest too much. Like, why is there all this <laughs> convincing? And then you get the kicker that like, spoiler alert, hopefully all of you have read the story along with us. Pause and go read it. It's like four pages long really if is. you haven't read it yet yeah. and then come back. Okay. Have you paused? Have you read? Good. Because what we discover is that all of this town's happiness and joy and sort of sinlessness is because all of that misery is concentrated 
on one poor abused child. And it's horrifying. And if anyone were to help the child, the all of the happiness of the town would be sacrificed. Yes. And it's so interesting to think of because, and then as, and then the story ends, you have this title, the one to walk away from Omalas. And basically what we're left with is noticing that some people choose to leave the town. We don't know where they're going. They never explain why, but some people choose to leave. And that's as close to a rebellion as we get. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where the story oh, there's so ends. much to unpack. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so much. There's, <laughs> there's so much that's been said and can be said. We're going to talk more on that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start by just talking about the language here. I think, you know, right from the get-go, there's so much rhythm in this prose. I mean, yes. those first couple sentences, I'll, I'll read them. With a clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omalas, bright towered by the sea. I mean, that's so beautiful. Like, there's just She's rhythm so in that sentence. And you're you're taken in immediately by this place. You can picture the festival and all the happy boys and girls and this sort of utopia that you're given. And then mm-hmm. slowly the tone starts to change. You realize there is this very vocal narrator involved. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, a very distant point of view. You get the narrator coming in and you get a bit of Le Guin putting her anthropology hat on with how she sort of talks about the people that lived there. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that sort of like subtle shift is is one of my favorite parts of the story because I love um, the way that she invites a reader to create this in their own mind mm-hmm. for them, right? So she's like, look, I can't even convince you that this is the perfect place. Like, what can I say to convince you? Like, should we have an orgy? Like, okay, fine. There's an orgy. Like, hmm, like, will there be religion? No, I don't think so. But like, let's hmm, how about drugs what do you think and it's like (laughs) I think that that's just like so creative because she's right like no matter what she said like it wouldn't if if she didn't invite the reader to like fill in the gaps Mm -hmm. and like she was like truly like I literally mean this is a utopia and if like what I said isn't that for you like I want you to adjust your expectations because we need to be on the same page that we are talking about a utopia and this looks so clever that she did that because she never could have done that without breaking down that fourth wall. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you could, if you just kept that same description, heavy picture, you, you wouldn't get, you'd get a, like a sense of happy, joyous place, but you wouldn't get that sense of utopia because you can't right. directly address all of this in just description. Right. And it also allows her to like give you like a, this, but not that. Right. So she's like, okay, well there's like, drugs and alcohol but not like alcoholism and like Mm -hmm. you know you know what I mean like she's like whatever like negative connotations you have about that positive thing I just said okay we don't have any of that yeah and I I just I like how during that you know it's a I have a printout of this and it's like a long paragraph that's sort of going into all of these Mm -hmm. possibilities and she makes a few interesting points like there's a part here where it's like she argues for communal parenting and I'm like that probably a nice thing. I mean, I'm reading everything about people struggling to parent during the pandemic when you're all closed off and can't have other people around you. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. that sounds nice. And it's like (laughs) having, you know, drugs, but only if you need them and there's no withdrawal or anything. That also sounds nice. Like you're you're taken in by this. And um, it's just really interesting. And then finally you get to that kicker of a paragraph. Do you believe then let me describe one more thing. And then it just completely turns on you. <laughs> and this poor child, like, 
that paragraph was hard to read a little bit. You're, you're thinking yeah. about this, this child. And unfortunately, children are abused like this. It's not told mm-hmm. in any kind of fantasy de- depiction. It's very mm-hmm. real. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the methods of neglect and abuse are, are real. Yeah. You know, they're all it, very much grounded in realism. Mm-hmm. It is. It's hard to stomach. Yeah. This child is so abandoned in this closet that it fears the mops that are in the corner of its dark room. And sitting in its own excrement. Oh, it's it's like, oh my gosh. And But this child is just the misery sink for the whole town. And everyone knows and everyone has to witness. And this child knows that everyone is watching the child. It's just, mm-hmm. but, no, but that child at the same time is wondering like, why me? Like, why is this going on? Yeah. I... It, it's it's horrifying. And then you, what I find really interesting though, is how the town justifies this. And that's when we get yeah. into the really human, very unfortunately relatable parts of this, the way mm-hmm. everyone, as they get older, they get past the childlike innocence of, oh, this is wrong. And they get older and they're like, you know, even if we set the child free, it wouldn't know what to do with that. Like, right. And yep. that's all the things the they use to convince themselves. Yes. They, they, they'll come up with anything to justify their inaction, which is also action by choosing not to act. And uh, gosh, it's, it's hard to sort of pick at it, but I wrote in the margins here calls to mind our own class structure. And I think, you know, right. you, you can't not see that criticism there. You know, who are we? Yeah, even in 2022, yeah, especially I would say like you think, right. I mean, think of the the pandemic, you know, essential workers. I mean, obviously it's a different analogy, but essential workers had to sort of put their bodies and their health on the line to allow so many of us to be able to work from home or benefit. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a different kind of analogy. But if you if you think about it, it's, you know, who are we benefiting for our creature comforts? Like who is losing out? I mean, when? Yeah. And I think that it like sort of just like raises the point that there's like I mean, is there any such thing as like responsible consumption, like in capitalism, not to be like, you know, super out there, but like, you know, that's, that's sort of what, what, what this like amounts to, you know what I mean? Like someone like, you know what, that t-shirt that you're wearing, like some, not you, I just mean (laughs) universal you, um, you have a nice turtleneck on today, but, uh, you know, that, that, that t-shirt that, that you might be wearing, you know, some, someone in you know a third world country like really suffered to like make that right like there there are trade-offs in in everything right the amount of time that we spend online is you know terrible for the environment in these data warehouses that exist and and use up so much electricity right there there's just like no such thing as a free lunch and I think that that is it's, it's just amazing that this story is so old and yet so timely absolutely it is so relevant and you need to almost exaggerate these points to call into question the very real practices that we've accepted the way the citizens of Omelas have accepted their practice, even though we see that as mm-hmm. utterly barbaric. And, and and it's interesting how the narrator is like, you know, they understand compassion. They understand that their happiness is on the backs of something. And I'm like, do mm-hmm. you really, do you really understand how, how much are you making yourselves really think about it? And, you know, you feel called out, but rightfully so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it reminds me a lot of climate change yeah. in today's day and age. Yeah. But, you know, what's really interesting is that uh, I was talking about this story with some of my friends recently, and one of them was like, how do they know? Like, why do they just believe it? Mm-hmm. They just like, 
you know, and, and I was like, you know, I didn't even think about that. Like I just sort of like accepted that, like, this is the rule of the story, right? Like that these are the laws that we're operating inside for this logic. But like, I mean, I guess that's like another way to look at it, right? That yeah. like nobody's even tried. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was thinking about it too. You know, what were they being told and had anyone even experienced trying to help the child and then the society failed? Like there's no reference to that ever happening. It's just something everyone yeah. knows and has been told and is accepted as as canon and right. but nobody's willing to break it. Right. That also relates back to today, especially when you think about things like systemic racism or climate change like we're just like it's too hard like we can't do it like it's not going to work right like we we couldn't you know make these giant changes to the way that the world is structured because it costs too much money and it would like break all the systems but we haven't tried it right Mm -hmm. and um every time I read this story which is actually often because sometimes if I can't turn my brain off at night. I'll I'll pull it up on my phone because it's like the perfect length to to sort of send me drifting off. But mm-hmm. you know, every time I I read it, I think I get a little bit more out of it from from what resonates with me about our world today. And I think that transitions really nicely to I mentioned that I wanted to talk about why this story wasn't exactly new, and that's because I had read previously uh, N.K. Jemison's sort of modernized twist on this story, which is. Uh, in one of her excellent collections, How Long Till Black Future Month, which, yeah, How Long Till Black Future Month, which I have here, was still one of the mm-hmm. best covers and one of my favorite short story collections. And this story is called The Ones Who Stay and Fight. And yeah. just that title tells you everything you need to know. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to spoil that story for you because it was not the assignment. But <laughs> I will say there were two things that uh, Jemison did here that I thought really worked in the story. The first was in those initial pages when she's setting up the city, she sets it up with some of those same questions that it's like, oh, were you looking for this? It's here, but it's so updated and it's also relevant to an audience of color. She brings in, there are people of multitude of skin tones because they've mm-hmm. come from everywhere and there are, there are differences in color, there are differences in shapes and sizes versus that's not something that's acknowledged in Le Guin's story. You you don't have a picture of what the people really look like other than the relative ages, but that's explicitly called out in Jemison's story. She even calls out ideas of systemic racism. One couple lines she has in to paraphrase is she's like, you know, in some of the office jobs, there are a few more paler skinned people in some of the working class jobs. There are a few more darker skinned people, but this has more to do with history and this city is working on it. It's not due to any systemic injustice And whether you choose to read that with sarcasm or not, it is an acknowledgement of the fact that these are the ideals that you would want Mm -hmm. in a great city, one where at least we recognize that there are differences and how they are being resolved. Mm -hmm. And that really brought that story into the modern age. And then the title itself, it kind of tells you what you're coming into. It's not people who walk away from the city. It's ones who are looking to make the world and larger society a better place. And that's something that's, all too applicable in today's world. Like, can you really walk away from capitalism in this sense without, I suppose you can move, but. (laughs) (laughs) But no, not really. But no, you you can't can't. walk away. Like you have a responsibility. You can't walk away from climate change. Like we don't have moon base yet. Like, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just because I think that that's obviously like the central question of the story, right? Is like, what would you do? You know, and um, 
And it's like not that easy, right? Because yeah. because you you're faced with this impossible choice. Like, do I, you know, watch this child suffer or do I like doom an entire city full of people? Yeah. Um, and like, and then so you're like, well, I'm not gonna make this choice. I'm gonna choose to like you know, protest this by leaving, but then what do you achieve by leaving? Right? right. That doesn't change anything. Or or are you just running away? Like are you just like refusing to read the climate change news? You yeah. know? And and so there isn't a good answer. There's no like, you know, moral high ground to any of those choices. I think anyone who is a good person could make an argument for any of those three things, help the child do nothing or leave. Yeah. Um but it's something that like is really interesting about in in the copy of the story that I have. There's a foreword um, by Ursula Le Guin, and she says like people ask me like, "What's the right answer?" And she's like, "I don't know." Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's not the point. I didn't I didn't come here to answer that question for you. you um, and I think about that question. always. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's a really good point that, you know, you're just meant to ask the question. It's like a story version of the trolley problem. Mm. Like, that's pretty much what we've got here. And I mean, if you walk away from the trolley, it's still going to move. Like, (laughs) there's just various options. And either way, there's going to be some kind of destruction. And you walking away from it doesn't necessarily do anything. It just maybe absolves some of your guilt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Maybe if you don't think about it. Maybe. And it's, oh, this is a downer. But honestly, this <laughs> this story is just like from a story level. It's it's beautifully written. It's exactly the right length. And that's the thing. It's like four stories. pages long. It's incredible. Four pages and it will stick with you. Honestly, the best short stories are the ones that really exemplify the form. They're not going on and on and on and thinking mm-hmm. they want to be novel length. This one really understands the form does what it sets out to do. I mean, it's obviously a story, but it's also like, you know, it's not, it doesn't have like a beginning and middle and end. There's like, not like a narrative. Like it's not like about a thing. It's more of a parable. Um, Which is like, yeah, exactly. It's much more of like a parable, but it's like, yeah, it's the perfect length. Um, And it's just so obvious that she was a poet when you read it, like not only because of the musicality of the sentences, like the one that you read, but like in the economy of the Mm -hmm. words, that she used yeah. because it does like we have we could literally probably talk about this for a whole another 30 minutes if we wanted to <laughs> and it's literally and it would take us half the time to read the story it's just incredible it's incredible you're right that there are no wasted words here and there are these just great lines like I underline this line where it says we have a, a bad habit of considering happiness as something stupid which mm-hmm. divorced from the story that's a really interesting point. Like mm-hmm. happiness is just something that you achieve by being ignorant rather than an active choice that you've chosen to make and something that it can involve intellectual fulfillment. Happiness seems mm-hmm. almost divorced from that. And our maybe it's our, again, our capitalist brains that are like, no, you are fulfilled if you are productive. Like, right. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I well, thought that was interesting. Wow. At me next time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's me too. Oh my God. I actually, by the way, total digression, but I read that productivity book you were talking about 4,000 weeks. Yeah. And that was the product. That is the like productivity book that I recommend. I usually Did you like hate, it. I hate the self-help genre normally, but that yeah. book worked for me. I bought it. Yeah. No, same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very, this is a digression, but <laughs> I, 
it's like not one of those so the the genre is big idea nonfiction Mm -hmm. and like so much of those books should just be TED talks but that one like I actually read the first half of it twice because I was like I need to make sure I internalized everything I just read yeah absolutely and I I loved how to be very brief on this obviously it's not a book we're talking about for the show but it 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 acknowledged the fact that we all have different versions of what it means to achieve our dreams because my least favorite thing about self-help books where it's like if you want it bad enough you'll find the money and which is not true. Like you can't do all of the things the books make you do. Or find the time. Or the time, the money, the time, the circumstances. Right. We all nope, have, we all have 4,000 weeks. Yeah. And this one is like, no, some of us, you know, may have less than you that. You have to make choices. Yeah. Some of us have people that rely on us. Some of us have economic circumstances and you find ways that work for you. And that's just so much yeah. more compassionate than these other books. Anyway, yeah. total digression, but totally recommend anyway, that Y'all book. should read that one. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> Um, but Didi, thank you so much for your time on this story. I'm glad I finally sat down and read it. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this club mm-hmm. is reading some of the like classic short stories out there and more short really stories. talking about them. We, we all need to read more short stories. True. Absolutely. I have like 8 million copies of the New Yorker from the last two years waiting for me to read the short stories right. inside them. <laughs> I, although I have like, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about New Yorker short stories sometimes. I'm like, what did I read in the end? But some of them are really, really great. It's true. It's true. And thank you all for listening. If you liked the episode, feel free to let us know about it wherever you place reviews for your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at YFP Podcast. And just a public service announcement, we will not be having an episode next week. Uh, There's actually going to be something special coming up for you on another show, and I'll be sure to give you plenty of sneak peeks about that. And so the week after, we'll have episodes as scheduled. All right, take care and happy reading.